Our scripture today is found in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 29, and is entitled, uh, The Ninth Plague, Darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them, of, uh, must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. May the Lord bless the reading of Scripture. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to be here this morning, and we can sit under the teaching of your word. We pray that by your spirit, you will illuminate our hearts to the truth that you would have us learn this day, that we might more and more image in light the beauty of who your son is and the reality of who your son is. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, this morning's uh, message is titled, Darkness Desolates Darkness, and with that, Um, We're going to see that uh, lived out in our Exodus story, but in our application, our takeaway today, we're going to go in a different direction. It's still going to be dealing with darkness. God is the one that can only use darkness to desolate darkness. But we, in in what he has given us and what we understand, we, we have an understanding of how we combat darkness with light. In fact, have you ever considered that as long as there is light, Darkness will always be a defeated foe. Anytime you shine light in the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it. You shine light in it, whether it's a flashlight, whether it's a headlight, whether it's daylight breaking, darkness must flee when light comes upon it. It's the reality of, of what we live in and how we address and deal with and, and interact with darkness that we see. And not just a physical darkness. There's a, another level going on with this. This is a, also a spiritual darkness. And we know that because we're dealing with the false gods of Egypt. So as you look at your bulletin in the takeaway today, it's straight from John 1.5. And this encouraging truth is the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And we can know that the darkness will never be able to overcome the light. And we'll be talking a little, about, a little bit today is who is the light and what is this light that overcomes darkness. But we need to get into plague number nine. We need the background. And as some of you have noticed, um, that uh, particularly the, the newer people, that it seems like there's a lot of foundation and then all of a sudden, we move quickly to the points. Well, that's because we're not ancient. We're not from the ancient Near East. We didn't live in the ancient Near East. And so we need to understand it from that perspective in order to grasp what's the intention for us. And we don't see it through a Western lens. I even went so far as today on your uh, outline to kind of show you and emphasize that there's a lot more space after bullet point number one than there are bullet points <laughs> two, three, and four. So just bear with me if you're looking at your watch and you're going, man, we're getting a little late here. Anyways, we move to the end of this. We move more uh, quickly through this stuff. Um, So, with that, we need to understand plague number nine, the last um, cycle of three. The first, uh, I'll say it this way, the first uh, cycle of three was kind of an inconvenience in dealing with those plagues, and then we get more serious with the plagues uh, uh, 
4, 5, and 6. And then we found that in 7, 8, 9, these are the, the big boys. We started off with hail, and the hail was huge, and it was destructive, and it stripped the, the, the trees of their branches. Anybody who was left in the field, if the Egyptians left their slaves in the field with the animals, they were destroyed. They were all crushed by these, this huge flaming. We saw the fire back and forth, the lightning strikes um, that occurred with the hail, so that we understood the destruction there. But then we get to the locusts, and you go, well... That wasn't such a big deal. They just ate what was trying to come back, the, the, the wheat and the emmer, which is another form of wheat, the two kinds of wheat that were in the ground and in, in seed form were just starting to come back up, and the branches were starting to shoot new uh, green shoots, and all of a sudden God brings these locusts. Well, the picture there was more than just that the locusts ate all that remained. It's the idea that they're done for that year. Agriculturally, this nation has no food to feed its people. They are robbed of their position. They might see it as robbed. For God, it's a just judgment upon them. He is bringing them low as a nation. There no longer will be a superpower. And it's the idea of the, the total devastation that God can bring uh, to anybody who, who hardens and calluses their And particularly as we uh, relate to this, it, it was the, God, the, the false gods working as puppet masters over the, the people of the Egyptian, the nation of Egypt. So when we get to the darkness and uh, plague number nine, a lot of people go, darkness? Really, that's, not, that's really not a big deal. In fact, uh, yesterday I had a conversation uh, with a couple of my sons, and uh, one of them said, so how are you going to deal with this? This darkness doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I thought, man, that's exactly what I was hoping you would say <laughs> because we're going to lay it out tomorrow, and it's going to be something where you go, oh, wow, I really get what he's doing. Now, this is, of course, this is one of the, of the last of the cycle. It's in the last cycle, and it's a biggie. And what it, what it shows and projects is uh, quite in, uh, impressive as to who our God is. So um, I don't see any new faces beyond, so I can move a little more quickly. Uh, uh, although, actually, I do. I, I looked again. Let me just explain what a polemic is. Sorry about that. I, I see Sam in the background. It's neat to have Sam uh, visiting, grandparents. Um, so with that, a polemic, he's going to do a polemic, he's gonna, which is an argument, uh, an argument of attack against the false gods, those fallen beings that are, that are the puppet masters behind the religion that these Israel, excuse me, that these Egyptians are following. So it's an argument against them as well as an actual taking them on, so to speak, by undercutting their power. That's one strain. We're going to talk about that in a second. Another thing that's cutting across what we read today, the second thing is decreation. It's God's judgment by, by taking that which can only be uh, uh, created by the creator, God, Yahweh himself, and using it against the people as a form of judgment, demonstrating that he is truly the creator, because look what he can do with creation, and he, the judgment comes about by moving it backwards. It move, and so we need to go a little bit more into detail today on why is darkness such a big deal, and you're going to get a chance to see where did that show up? Where, where did we see darkness in creation? So with that, let's deal with the polemic. I'm going to, last week I read to you from Phil Riken and uh, uh, Kent Hughes, and I, I, when I went back to him first this week, and I don't like to normally jump, but they were so good, I'm like, I don't have to do a lot of research. These men just nailed it. I don't normally give names out, but they, they deserve credit because of what they've done in their studies of the ancient Near East. So let me, let me go ahead and read to you the first few paragraphs of what they have written as it relates to what is going on with Yahweh, the God who is self-existent outside of nature because he is the one who created nature against the, the gods of Egypt, and particularly one one God. Let me read. And I'm going to get a, give you a kind of a running editorial because there's so much good stuff here. Um, so once in a while, I'll come offline and, and explain something. Days of darkness would frighten anyone, but they, would ha- they, they held a special terror for the Egyptians because they worshipped the sun. As Stephen Quirk notes in his study of ancient Egyptian religion, quote, we need to understand the place of the sun in Egyptian civilization before we can begin to know anything about ancient uh, Egypt. The Egyptian, end quote, the Egyptians served Horus, so there's one of the lower gods, he's not the biggie, uh, the god of the sunrise, listen, they're going to have different gods for different times of the day where the sun is in the sky. So you first you start off with Horus, the god of the, of the sunrise, and then you have Aten, the god of, of the round midday sun. And then you have Atum, the god of the sunset. But the supreme deity in their national path, pantheon was Amun-Ra, or Re, 
if, if you sometimes you'll see it pronounced. So, or it, actually, it should have been if I was pronouncing it correctly in the Hebrew. In, interesting in Hebrew, the syllable is almost always on the last. Excuse me, the accent is almost usually on the last. So it would be Aman uh, Ra for us. Uh, so with that, Aman Ra, who said, and this is what he said. Listen to the arrogance of this. This is what people put in his mouth, the worshipers of Ra, who made this person up, who actually is a being. It's a fallen being, but the being doesn't write scripture like God has written scripture. So you see human beings making this, this stuff up. Listen to this. I am the great God who came into being of himself, he who created his names, he who has no opponent among the gods. Well, there's a problem there, right there. If you're comparing him to Yahweh, he says, I am the one that came into being himself. And you think, oh, this guy thinks he's, he's pretty big. Well, think about Yahweh. He has no start. He has no time of not existing. So although though this guy is, is, is you know, uh, making himself out to be big, he's not the self-existing Yahweh. So let's continue on. The Egyptians believed that this solar deity was their creator, the unique God. They would sing in their great hymn to the sun disk, and quote, and let me quote here, there is none besides you. Oh, our God Yahweh is going to have a problem with that statement. Um, you mold the earth into, your, into what you wish. You and you alone. Yeah, Yahweh's going to have a problem with that. All people, herds and, and flocks, all of the earth that, that walks on legs, all on high that fly with their wings, end quote. Every morning, they're explaining now again, the, the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed the life-giving power of Amon-Ra. Sunset represented death and the underworld. And this is fascinating. There's a dynamic. Now you're going to start to see why darkness is being de- dealt with. The underworld, think, I, I know, we, don't use, we don't use those terminologies. It was very much a part of ancient uh, um, Near East. Um, almost every culture, from what we can see in the uh, the what we have found through archaeology has an understanding of this underworld, this, this world where the dead go. So let's continue on. Uh, sunset represented death in the underworld, but the rise of Amon-Ra offered the hope of resurrection. There's only one God that has the power of resurrection. For the Egyptians, it was a matter of faith that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed. Really? You would have sun, sunrise every day? Hmm, let's see what Yahweh, the creator of the sun, can do with that truth. Like most Egyptians, Pharaoh was a sun worshiper. So even though he is a god, and all the Egyptian kings, which are called pharaohs, are gods themselves, they also worship the gods up in the pantheon, up in the heavens. So there's a double, uh, there's a dynamic going on, a duality. Like most Egyptians, Pharaoh was a sun worshiper. More than that, he was regarded as the son of Ra. In other words, Amon-Ra. So he's the son of the highest deity, uh, the, the one that they refer to as the, the god of light. From the, from, again, the, the light illuminating from the, the heavens. Uh, let's see. Uh, the personal embodiment of the solar deity. Egypt's king was Egypt's god. And, the, uh, and as the incarnation of Amon-Ra, he maintained the cosmic order of Ma'at. Well, early on, and I haven't said this with every one of them, the pharaoh's role here was to keep order on earth. He was Amon-Ra incarnate, the sun, the physical sun of Amon in the skies. Sound familiar a little bit to, to Christianity? And he was supposed to keep Ma'at. It's a word exclusive to Egypt. It sometimes it gets pulled into other languages. And the idea is that's harmony, that everything keeps working. It's not harmony the way we know harmony. We know harmony, righteous harmony, because it is righteous. It adheres to moral goodness of God. Their understanding of Ma'at is whatever is best for their God to do, whether or not it's unrighteous. So don't think of it. It's much like the Greek gods. Have a have a have a, an ability to sustain control, but it's not a, a true harmony. Only righteousness can control can sustain a a true harmony. Okay, so let's continue on. Uh, Stephen Quirk writes, and I quote: "At the kernel of the of the civilization stands a special relationship between the d- divine father figure of the sun god, ruler of creation. Think of of God, our the Father as we know him, and his so- solitary offspring on earth." the reigning king of Egypt. And again, you hear the son of God. It's just creepy how, how close it is to what, in some aspects, of Christianity. This establishes the key relationship in creation between the sun god as the elder partner in the sky and his issue, and his issue on earth, 
the junior partner. Within the, the reign of each king, he alone appears as the living representative of the sun god on earth, and he enjoys use, he, excuse me, and he enjoys a unique sovereignty in the practical exercise of his power. Game on. You want to see the practical exercise of power? Yahweh says, I'm going to bring it right to you. And so he's going right after Pharaoh and Amon-Ra over the, uh, uh, the Egyptian god, over the celestial light, the light that comes from heaven. A couple more paragraphs. I hope this is giving you a little more context. The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh as their god. In school, children were instructed to worship Pharaoh. I cannot, as your pastor, come off li- not come offline here for a second. I need to throw in an editorial. Right now, our kids are being, though they're in public school, are fear of being taught to worship the god of sexual perversion. LGBTQ, go one, two, three, whatever it is else out there. Um, that is the god. That, that is being forced on us by our culture to worship. And you need to understand a Christian world where you go, oh, we understand this as a God that wants to be worshipped. And we see their little minions, the people that unfortunately either willingly or unknowingly are ignorant to the fact that they are, they are promoting this. And then there's also the God of hate in the critical race theory. The critical race theory says there is oppression. Christians would agree with that. There are issues with racism. Christians would agree with that. Uh, however, uh, the, the answer is to oppress who they identify as the oppressor. You return evil with evil. And we say, well, 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 it's not critical race theory. It's critical sin reality. Sin is the one that brings about uh, uh, an oppressing, a desire to oppress other people and to do wrong. We need to deal with this on a sin level. Not on this answer to how you deal with sin. You just oppress the the group that was oppressing before. Wrong. So I want you to hear that. When you hear these terms, you know to say, wait, there's there's, there's something fundamentally wrong. It opposes the Christian worldview, and we grasp that. So let's continue on now. The Egyptians worshipped Pharaoh as their god. In school, children were instructed to worship Pharaoh. Uh, living forever within your bodies and associate with his majesty in your hearts. Isn't that fascinating? We have an indwelling spirit. They believe that Pharaoh lived in there, dwelled within them. Fascinating, the, the connection to, the, to Christianity. He is Ra, by whose beams one sees. He is the one who eliminates the two lands, excuse me, illuminates the two lands more than the sun disk. The two lands are the upper and lower Egypt. That's what they refer to as two lands. The Egyptians thus ascribe all majesty and eternity to Pharaoh. He was their illuminator. You'll notice I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts today. He is the one that illuminates their people. And so you can see that, that contrast to us. The Lord of their hearts. Sometimes they even prayed to him saying, Attend to me, O rising one, that illuminates the two lands within with his comingless, comeliness. Excuse me. And then listen to this. O solar disk of mankind that dispels darkness from Egypt. His job is to dispel darkness from Egypt. Can he do it when the God of creation comes and brings darkness on the land? Thy nature is is like unto the Father Ra who arises in heaven. All right, Pharaoh, game on. You have to to just stop this darkness. Okay, I don't want to go any further. We've gone long enough in that. I do want to deal with decreation. Um, We understand Genesis. I'm going to bring it back to you so you can grasp Genesis in light of of what uh, hopefully a Hebrew would get. They know what happened in Genesis. They're they're living out Exodus, and hopefully they are starting to make connections to to this. Listen to this. um, I'm reading from Genesis 1, 3 through 5. This is the very beginning of the Bible. This is where it all starts. So important. We have a foundational understanding of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and, and void. In other words, it's incomplete. It's a st- and this is hard to hear if it's the first time you've heard it worded this way. It's in a state of incompletion, a state without order. You have heaven. He, he creates heaven and earth. He's not talking about earth in, in Genesis 1. He refer- excuse me, he's not talking about uh, heavens. He references that first to say, I started there, and this book is about what I'm doing here at least this portion of the book. And so this is all Genesis 1 is talking about earth. So we hear this playing out that um, the, the earth is without form and void. It's, in a, it's incomplete. It's in a state of disorder. Theologians like to call this uh, chaos or primordial chaos. 
That basically means that primordial is the beginning. The beginning of creation had an element of chaos. And I can tell you the first time I had one of my professors teaching me this, I'm like, oh, I got a problem with that. And if you've got a problem with that, then you follow in what, where I was. We don't worship a God who's, who is, is a God of confusion. Just look at 1 Corinthians uh, 14.33, and it'll say that. So what's this teacher trying to tell me about this, this, this chaos thing that it is? And he's like, slow down, Nick. Try and understand what he's, what he's explaining here. Just bear with us. This is a process, and you're going to see this borne out. Let's let God reveal what he means by this, or what theologians are helping us understand is this, this formlessness and then this void. What is, how is this incomplete, or how is this a, a, a thing of disorder? Let's continue on. Um, which, by the way, I do want to hit this. There is a question that I hope you have asked in your lifetime. If not, you've heard someone else ask it. Why doesn't God just save us? And when he saves us, bring us to perfection immediately. Why does God take the time in sanctification to progressively change us? And then you can look to this passage to go back to. God is a God that takes new creation. You and me are new creations in Christ Jesus. And he brings about order to his creation. And you'll see in seven times in Genesis 1, it is good. It is good. It is good. Yes, there's an inherent goodness in whatever he created, but the goodness is he's taking the formlessness and the void, and he's bringing form to it, whether he's making day and night. Now, it ha- now we no longer have just darkness. We have, we have orderliness. We have an order of day and night. And he's, or it's the land, and he's filling the land. He makes dry land, and it, it, you have dry land separated, and you have the sea separated out. And he takes that, that section, that area, and he takes land, and he fills it. There's no longer void of creatures. He fills it, and it is good. And you see, you see the skies. He fills it with birds, and he says it is good. You see that he makes sea creatures, and he fills the sea, the other area or realm, and it is good. What you should pick up when you heard it started off that the, the world, excuse me, the earth was uh, without form and void. It was in a state of confusion. It was in a state of darkness. But God brought order. The order is primarily what he's pointing to here. So now let's move forward in, in what's going on here in uh, our very first, the beginnings of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The deep in Hebrew is the, is the, the waters. That means you, you look into it, all you would see is the deep. It's just blackness, so, so deep of water. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he's going to explain it now in greater detail. And God saw that the light was good. Why is it good? Because, what it, listen, what it's going to do, why it's good. And God separated the light from the darkness. He's bringing order to it. God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. We have order now. We have also, we have a sense of time that this day and night gives us. We're starting to see creation take on what God intends. That's what, he's, what he did at the beginning. That's what he does in us through sanctification process, the process of bringing us as new creations in Christ Jesus, bringing order into our life, getting rid of the unjust or the injustices that we used to hold to, getting rid of all the idolatry, all the false worship of the gods we didn't even realize that the world has taught us. And he's he's making us more and more in the order and making of what he intended all along. So you go, now I understand sanctification, why it is. This is a God who works this way. So we continue on here. Let me just leave it with this as far as decreation goes. In today's passage, Yahweh the Creator Overall, decreates once again. In judgment upon Egypt, he moves creations backwards by causing the light to cease and only darkness remained. This is as if he has moved us all the way back. The Spirit is hovering over the waters, preparing to, to create. What's interesting, when they move, when the nation, it's actually a family. It's not referred to a nation, per se, until they move to Mount Sinai. He's going to take the family of God through all the patriarchs. He's going to move them to Mount Sinai. He's going to bring order in their lives by the law. And he's going to birth a nation out of a family. And we have a new beginning. 
That's the bigness of what God is doing. And we start to see these, and we're like, wow, God's amazing. Sometimes I get too far down in the weeds, and I miss the bigger things that God is doing. So we have this understanding, and it's going back to our understanding of decreation. In judgment upon Egypt, he, God, Yahweh, moves creation backward by causing the light to cease and only darkness remain. The nation of Egypt has decreated back to a time when they knew not their glory among the nations. In the midst of this overwhelming darkness, they cannot even rise from their homes. They are incapacitated by the darkness. We don't get that. We have light. We can move about any time we want. They don't have light. You don't move around in the darkness. We're going to, in fact, you're going to see this borne out in the, in the use of the, the Hebrew words that, they, that uh, Moses writes under the inspiration of God. The nation is formless and void of its original glory. And so is the greatest of their gods, Amun-Ran, the Ra, the god of light in the heavens, and his incarnate son on earth, Pharaoh. They don't have glory anymore. They have only darkness. They are supposed to control the darkness. They are the god and the, and the son of God who are supposed to bring about light. So let's take a look at this. First, we look at, as you're following along in your uh, outline, darkness mu- must not rule over the children of light. We're gonna, each, of those, uh, each of these subcategories deals with what we should be, take away from it while we learn what is happening with the, uh, uh, the Israelites. So Exodus 10, 21 to 23. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven, identifying the source comes from heaven of, of what's going about to take place, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. Very unusual wording here in the Hebrew. It's a darkness to be felt. What does that mean? The the word here is mashash in Hebrew. It means to grope about. If you were blind and you could not see, you would have to grope about your surroundings to feel the objects, to know where things were, and to not stumble over that which you can't see anymore. This is a very physical picture of the darkness. It's a darkness that they will feel, feel in the sense that they will feel and understand what it means to be blind. But there's also a mental sense that's going on, a mental blindness, and you might even say it's a blindsidedness. So all of a sudden, their God, the God of light, can't stop darkness. And we know it's three days. They didn't know how long it would last. They are blindsided by the reality that all they have believed and the God they believed in is false. He is no God at all. And they are left in the darkness and confusion that is that reality. I can tell you that at age 23, when I learned that my faith was a works-based faith, you start to question everything. Well, is this true about God? Is that true? Wasn't that in the Bible? How did I misperceive this? All of a sudden, you live in mental confusion. My worst fear is that I would ever teach anybody from this pulpit false doctrine because I lived underneath it for 23 years. And it's, it is to, the, to awaken to that and realize that you start to question everything. There's a confusion initially. And it's a, in this case, it's a healthy confusion. It's meaning for that which we, God does in our own lives when we realize what we believe is false. It's not based on the true plan of salvation of our God. Their minds would be filled with darkness and confusion as they mentally groped to assess their situation and make sense of it. Proverbs 4.19 says this, and listen to this, this doesn't make sense to you now in in a new, fresh way as you read this proverb. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Can you now get a picture, understanding of what we are going through with Pharaoh that more clearly? It's darkness to them physically. Well, and I should say it's darkness to them theologically, spiritually, you would say. They don't even understand what they, they were stumbling over when they do not know Christ. Let's continue on. This is still in the same area. Darkness must not rule over the children of light. Verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness. In the Hebrew, the word is there is dark darkness. It gets translated as pitch darkness. Can we think pitch Pitch is something that um, we, we saw the word pitch used for the, uh, what they put on the ark to put uh, uh, Noah down the Nile River so that the, the water wouldn't come in the ark. They, they put pitch on the bottom of it. It's a black substance that makes it uh, water impenetrable. It's the same thing that, they, that it was put on the ark, Noah's ark, to make it impenetrable to the water. 
So we, we have an idea that it's this black impenetrable. That's why they use the word pitch. I kind of like what the King James Version, for whatever reason, it spoke more to me. It's thick darkness. If you've ever tried to drive in fog, you've got to go slow, and you've got to shift those lights to the fog lights because you can't see in front of you 10 feet. And you're like, oh, boy, I hope the other person, because I'm, I'm not going to have time to respond, hope the other person's going slow and staying on their side of the yellow line as well. That's the idea. It is so thick, you can't see. You can feel it. It's so thick, but you can't see anything in, in Egypt. Let's continue on. And there was pitch darkness. Uh, I do want to point out that these two words get used in that order in three other places in the Bible. So there's, there's potentially we can... We can know that there's, there's uh, more going on here. It's used in Isaiah 29, Joel 2, and Zephaniah 1.15, and it is translated in those areas as gloomy darkness. Ah, there is an emotional theological component as well to this darkness. It's felt that way. And all of a sudden, the, the wholeness of who we are as human beings and what the darkness is doing to the Egyptians is better understood. This isn't just loss of light. This is a, a, a dread of life. Will we ever know life again? Will, will, will life ever turn back on? We can't grow crops. We are the walking dead, if we are even able to walk because of the thick darkness that surrounds us. So we continue on. Uh, uh, I'll start with 22 again. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness or, or dark darkness or, or thick darkness or gloomy darkness, whatever helps you get a grasp on it. And all the land of Egypt for three days, they did not, in other words, they could not see one another, nor did they rise from this place. It's interesting that it says what it says there. In the Hebrew, it woodenly, I'll use the word literally. I don't like that word as much I'm, um, because you can have literally and, and, and different aspects of that. Woodenly means I'm going I'm to translate this as it comes in the Hebrew so you can hear it. This is what it would say. Instead of it saying, nor did anyone rise from his place, woodenly it said, no man could rise up from under it. It's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a noun, a place. It's a preposition, under it. No man could rise up under it. I heard one of the commentators help me understand it. It's a thickness that, that has come over them that has weight. There is nothing they could do to counteract this darkness. They are completely helpless and held hopeless in the midst of this darkness. This is what Yahweh is doing to them. This is what Yahweh is doing to defeat the God who's supposed to be the God over light. And notice it says for three days. We saw that twice there. It referenced three days. Well, what is three days? Three days is a, we talked about this early on. When Moses first comes, he says, hey, we need to go out into the desert for three days to worship our God. And Pharaoh knows because it's an, it's a, uh, a, uh, an understanding in the ancient Near East. When you were three days gone, you weren't coming back. You were gone. That means you were going out on a long journey and you weren't coming back. So when they announced that early on, Pharaoh knows. That's why Pharaoh keeps using a different word. He, yeah, I'll let you go, but you've got to come back. You've got to return. So when you have three, I want you to understand. I'm going to give you a little bit of understanding of numerology. Numerology is when languages use numbers. doesn't mean always, but, but sometimes they have significance to it. I believe this is one of the times it has significance. So uh, in numerology... Uh, for the ancient Near East, and particularly for the biblical numerology, what the Hebrews understood the, the number to be, three is the, the understanding of completeness, finality, or definiteness. I believe it's definiteness. If you were three days on a journey, you were definitely not coming back. If you were three days in darkness... It is done. Ra is definitely not in control. He is definitely a false god. Only Yahweh is in control. Now, I want to make a little bit of a hyper jump here. Not back, but forward. If you're three days in the grave, we know somebody that was three days in the grave. And we know that uh, even in the times of Greek, they knew that it went th three days in the grave meant you were dead, dead. Mm -hmm. There was no chance you were ill or no chance you were under a coma, you were dead. You were dead, dead. So Jesus Christ 
we're going to see here, is the only one that's three days in darkness or death, as we're going to see this represents, and is able to conquer death. It is not definite, meaning that Jesus was definitely dead, but Jesus has dead in a, in a, in a physical human sense. He's God, so he's not dead as far as, far, as, far as it relates to that issue. He's the God-man, fully God and fully human. It's hard for us to get us our, our mind around this, around this but all, all roads lead to heaven? Uh-uh. There's only one that was definitely dead and conquered death, and he is Jesus Christ. He conquered that which was, was intended for us, death, but he took as judgment so that we might have eternal life. Amen, amen. So let's continue on as we, we understand this. So we would understand that this three, three days of darkness was death of a nation, no more, long, no more a, su- a superpower, death of the gods, and, and I'll just leave it there. We won't go into the other area. Sometimes I can geek out a little too much. Uh, let, let's, let's see what this means. What's the impact here? Darkness brought, along, brought about desolation to Egypt lifelessness. They don't rise from their dwellings. And whether that means home or the city kind of a deal, maybe it's a little more wider, broader uh, geographic area rather than individual homes. It can be that the Hebrew language allows that. But no matter what the case is, this city, if you, were, if you had light and looked on this city, the city would look desolated. There would be no movement in the city. You'd be like, where is everybody? That's the picture of what God is doing. Egypt appears devoid of inhabitants. Think about when there was darkness over all of, the, all of God's creation. God hasn't created the inhabitants. He hasn't separated out yet in Genesis 1 the realms, whether it be sky, land, or sea, and he hasn't put inhabitants in there. This is the moving back. This is the picture of, of this decreation judgment. Everything is motionless. Let's continue on. This is a, a strange. Egypt is a sort of Sheol. Now, you would hear, we call it, in, the, in today's language, we, if you hear it referred to, you'll say, uh, you'll see it in the underworld. Just sometimes you'll see tattoos, evil tattoos on, on people that will show the, the, the underworld. Um, that's the idea where all of the dead have gone. In ancient Near East, as well as Hebrew, it was referred to as Sheol. And so, what we, then Sheol, let me give you an idea, give you the name that they called it. This was called the Place of Shadows. It was like you were there, but there's so much darkness, you're not really there. It's more of a shadow of who you are that's there. You're not there in wholeness. Your consciousness is there. Who you are in the inside, your body remained in the grave. So where, did, where do we go after we die? They understood that as Sheol. And they, you'll see that Sheol used quite a bit in the Bible. To, to David references that quite a bit. So listen to this. I want to give you an idea of what is going on in the Egyptian world so that what God is fighting against, what Yahweh is fighting against. Listen to this. This is another entry from a different source um, on what the underworld looks like in Egyptian. Amon Ra created all other elements of life by speaking their secret names. Um, He spent his days traveling across the sky on a boat. Now listen to this. Listen how uh, childlike this is. But this is what they believe. This is what they... they, this This isn't... They couldn't see the boat, but they really believed there was a boat there. So listen to this. He spent his days traveling across the sky in a boat where he carried prayers. As he's going, he's moving over the land, and he hears these prayers rising up, and he takes into the boat the prayers. But he also does something else. And blessings for the, for the living. He sends down the blessings as he's moving. He's listening to these prayers. He's sending the blessings down to earth. Um, kind of almost childlike. And at night, he would travel. So, okay. You're, you're Amon Ra. You're moving, you're moving across the hemisphere of the sky, and you come now to the, the land. What happens? Do you just, you know, does it somehow just appear over here? No, they have a theology that says what happens is it goes, he goes underneath in this boat. So listen to this, what, what happens. Uh, at night he would travel to the underworld, or Sheol, where Set, another false god, and Mehen, another false god, would help him defeat the demons and monsters of the underworld. He would leave the moon in the sky. That's going to be dark this time too. He would leave the moon in the sky while traveling to the underworld so that the living would still have light. It is said that he he was reborn each day as the sun would rise over the horizon. 
So if there's no sun to rise over the horizon, if there's just darkness, he is dead and captured by the underworld. He lost the body, the, the, excuse me, the battle. Amon-Ra is stuck in Sheol. That's what the Egyptians are putting together here. Okay, let's, let's uh, understand that darkness for the Egyptians would be palpable um, because they're dealing also with the defeat of Ra waited upon them. Their God is dead. Who is protecting them then? All the other nations have gods. We were a superpower. We oppressed the other nations. What's going to happen to us now? This would be sheer terror. If they even live, if light doesn't come back, they're dead. They are ultimately consigned to the underworld. So let's continue on in verse 23. What's the contrast here in verse 23? But all the people of Israel had light. What does light represent? Not just the physical light. It, it, it represents life itself. Activity, movement, motion. Uh, we see that while the thick darkness pictures consignment to the grave, light is motion-filled. It is the idea that Yahweh is with his people in, in uh, the land of Goshen. He is interacting with them. They are the covenant community that he took on himself by way of Abraham. And where he is, his presence is, there's light, there is protection, there is his presence. A complete contrast of what's going on um, with the Egyptians. Light represents the presence of Yahweh with his people. So let me ask you this. How are we Christians like the people of Israel? How are we light, excuse me, like the people who dwelled in the land of light? Let's explore that because this has, has, has issue with us. This has uh, meaning to us. This has impact into our lives as it relates to sanctification. Let me, let me, let me just walk you through this and then we'll continue on. This is the, the last segment of the, the buildup until we move more quickly through the other points. So how are, are we Christians like the people of Israel? Though we are not physically living in Goshen, the land of light, we are children of light. You may have never heard this reference. You may have heard it before, and you didn't get its context. It goes all the way back to this episode. And Paul is countering. Paul, the guy who, as a Pharisee, had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, memorize. He knows these truths. He sees these truths, and he sees what God is doing through the person of Jesus Christ in the lives now. So listen to this. Ephesians 5, 6 through 8. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness. The sons of dis- disobedience are the sons of darkness. So we understand this contrast. But now you are, are, the, are light in the Lord. And, uh, unto, and when he's applying to where we live. Number two, we are children of light because we have the light. John eight twelve says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Have significance to what Jesus is as far as light of the world? He's contrasting that of darkness. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's talking about eternal life. But you can grasp all this for what was happening first in in the Egyptian account. We understand that Jesus, by God's mercy, is the light of this world. If we repent and believe, in what Jesus Christ has come to do by paying for our punishment, then we become children of light. We don't just, you know, oh, I want to be a child of light. And so I am, and I think it that way. This isn't just affirmative belief systems. This is trusting in what Jesus Christ has done. And then lastly, because we are now part of the kingdom of light, we Christians are not supposed to walk in darkness. Listen to this. Ephesians 4.17 Listen to all the references. Listen to contextualize the, the, the darkness that, that, he's, that Paul is, is trying to contrast against. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testified in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance, another way of describing darkness, that is in them due to their hardness of heart. We understand that with Pharaoh's hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. These are the things of darkness. Sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, 
which belongs to the former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. What are the, the deceitful desires? They are the desires of darkness. The things that you used to, to, to want that were part of the kingdom of darkness. That's what it means to put off these, these, these uh, corrupt deceitful desires. And in verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, to take, to be changed attitudinally, as, as well as our thinking, our attitudes and our thinking, so we put off the, the thinking of darkness and we put on the thinking of children of light, the truths that God has given us. And then end, uh, it continues on, and then put on the new self, that's our new identity as children of life. Let me just leave it there. We can see that we are not children of darkness. We need to change. We need to be transformed. We understand that God starts with a creature that just got out of darkness. He transforms our hearts, but that's not our identity anymore. He is in the process of bringing order to our life by the law and by the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to transform us. We need to grasp that. So what should be our response to realize darkness? When we realize, ugh, that's the old me. That's, that's, I don't want that darkness. Ephesians 5.11 says this, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Let the light shine into your life. Admit what you need to admit to whoever you need to admit it to, that this is a part of me I don't want anymore. I want to shine the light of God's truth on my life. I'm not hiding in the shadows. I'm not doing the dirty deeds that I used to do in, in the darkness where no one could see me. I'm shining light on it because I want my life transformed. Let's look at uh, number, number two there, the second point there. Obedience must never be held back by the children of God. Let's look at Exodus 10, 24, and we'll move quickly through this section. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go. And the, by the way, um, he's talking about a temporary going. We learned that there's a difference of the temporary and the permanent. He's not wanting the people to, to go and be gone. He wants them to return. Go, serve Yahweh. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Pharaoh is holding back obedience. This is what you're supposed to do, Pharaoh. Let everybody go and go what they, do what they need to do to serve God. Let all of God's people go. And he's holding back. We do the same thing. We as Christians need to stop holding back. We need to understand and look at our lives and realize where are we holding back our obedience to God. It doesn't work. It didn't work for Pharaoh. It doesn't work for us as Christians. Our life does not function as it's intended to. You, you might get away with some temporary pleasure, but ultimately it is not God-honoring, and you're not uh, uh, imaging the glory of God, the person of Christ himself. Let's go on to point number three. Compromise ne must never be tolerated by the children of light. Let's see what Moses has. When, when Pharaoh doesn't wants to, to compromise, or when Pharaoh doesn't want to obey completely, he holds back. Let's see what Moses said. But Moses says, you, and by the way, in the Hebrew, it's emphasized. You must, must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to do, <clears throat> excuse me, to Yahweh our God. Our livestock must go with us, not a, a hoof shall be left behind, and we must take, uh, take of them to serve Yahweh our God. And we, emphasize here, do not know. We don't know what God's going to want as far as the sacrifice, so we're bringing all of the animals because we still have to learn how do, we, how do we truly honor this God through sacrifice? We, you, me, Christians, we are learning to honor our God through the, our sacrifice, meaning the changes that we make when I speak of sacrifices in this, in our lives. No longer cherishing the things that, are the, that were the evil part of us. We must never compromise as, the, the, by, as, excuse me, as children of the light. Um, we just can't do that. We go hard after what God calls us in obedience. And lastly, we see that darkness is frustrated by the children of light. Look at what, what happens here with, with this. But Yahweh hardened, and there, it's Hazak. That's the one that we're used to seeing whenever Yahweh's doing the hardening. Pharaoh's hardened. He would not let them go. He would not let them shalach. He would not let them go completely, finally, never come back. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Interesting, he uses a temporary word. If you don't know the Hebrew, you wouldn't know that he's saying, I'm going to see you again. And in the last part of this verse would confuse you. He's saying, get a hold of, go away from me. But he's not saying, go away from me completely. 
Listen to this. Um, take care, or the, the Hebrew is the understanding of guarding or watching yourself. Never to see. Well, it's not see. This is where you can get confusion. The word there is never confront me again. You don't come into my business. I'll call out to you and bring you here. You do your thing. I'll call you when I need you. Stop showing up at my palace and trying to tell me what your God wants. That day, those days are done. That's what he's communicating. So we continue on. Never to see my face again. For on the day that you see my face, you shall die. If you come into my, into my court again without being summoned by me, you're a dead man. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, if I see you out there and we make our eyes cross, you're dust. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, stop putting your God in front of me. Stop having your God tell me what to do. Let's continue on. Moses said, as you say. In other words, uh, and then he continued on, I will not see your face again. In other words, I'm not going to come. But the most gracious thing I could do is to tell you what you're doing wrong so at least your people could be spared. Remember, God would give them a warning, and sometimes the people would take their slaves out of the field like in the hail so that their slaves didn't die. You're going to die, Pharaoh. Your judgment is sealed. But you would be wise to allow me to come into your, your, into your presence so that your people can have the mercy that, that God wants to extend to them. He's going to put you in your place as a false god. Pharaoh wants no part of that. Darkness is frustrated by the restraining presence of the children of life. And my last thing, things here, how is it frustrated? Because we, the children of light, will not turn away from speaking the truth. I'm telling you, in this world, it's getting harder and harder. There are more and more consequences for us for speaking the truth. If you speak the truth, you are canceled at worst. And you are picked on, and you are belittled, and you are made nothing. You are put into the, the group that says that these are the evil ones by the world. We must speak the truth but according to Ephesians we're supposed to speak the truth in love speak it in a way that the people know that we love them if you do this you bring judgment on yourself I don't want judgment and then finally we speak we frustrate by speaking unfortunately but we speak with the intent to bring the gospel this is the God that you will see his judgment unless you accept what his son has done for you then you can know what I found out, what you found out, whoever you're speaking with, that Jesus died for my sins. I was deserving of judgment just like you. But there is a way out of this judgment. That's the truth of the gospel. Speak the truth, Christian. Speak it in love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that the darkness can never overcome the light. Remind us of that truth when we are lacking the courage to speak the truth in whatever setting we're in. Give us the courage in the midst of that. Remind us of these truths in our own lives when we're tempted to fall to sin. These are what we need to hear in the midst of that moment. Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for how you bring about change in us, how you love us, how you never leave us nor forsake us. We ask you to do your work we ask you, we beg you to do it even when we, we want to run away in disobedience, even when we want to do it our own, our own way. No, take hold of us, whether it be by the collar of uh, our shirt collar or whatever means, take hold of us. Have mercy on us. Teach us the truth. Teach us obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.